David? Yep, I'm on. Ah, wonderful. What's really good is the owner of this house has just walked in, right? And that's what you love about when you're doing a podcast like this. Someone should always walk in for authenticity. John, say hello to David <laughs> in Melbourne. Oh, hi, David. I love Melbourne. Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> well, I... Uh... He says it's just like Glasgow. Is it raining? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a beautiful sunny day. Oh, great. Fantastic. I've only, went, I've only been once just for a couple of days, but I loved it. It's my favourite Australian city. Ah, oh, well, let's say you're saying all the right things. Well, I'm a big fan of Scotland too, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, because um, <clears throat> Melbourne, it is a bit like Glasgow. Some of the architecture, the bridges, the Victorian yeah, yeah. aspect of it, and, uh, you know, it's all based around the river, just like Glasgow. But it rained when I was there, that's what made me laugh. It's sunny <laughs> most of the time, but it did rain just for my visit. <laughs> yes. yeah, I don't think it rains quite as much as Scotland, but it's oh, no, uh, yeah, definitely great. No, great. Well, have a good one. I'll let you guys on me work. Cheers, John. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Hi, so um, tell me about Digging Deep, your new podcast, David, because uh, genuinely I'm not actually sure what it's going to be all about. I know it's <laughs> about mining. And although people think mining's awfully dirty and dangerous and we don't have to do it anymore because we've got nice, shiny new electric cars where we can drive to our new shiny offices powered by renewables, uh, I think the truth might be a little different. What do you think, David? <laughs> well, well, you're, 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 <laughs> who are you for a start? Because I haven't given you a credibility intro in this podcast. Who the hell is yep, David no. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, Law. Well, I'm... Uh... I'm a uh, veteran of the mining industry, having worked in the mining industry for over 30 years on four continents. So I've worked in Australia, in remote parts of Australia, in Europe, in Africa and in Asia. And I've got, you know, really experience across the industry from everything from exploration through to shipping, but a particular focus on social responsibility and ESG because uh, you know mining is important for so many lives in ways that people can't even imagine i think that aren't close to the industry so the podcast is designed to really look at some of the um interesting um issues that the industry is facing and that society is facing in relation to mining today and as you rightly point out you know mining which is the world's oldest industry is absolutely critical for delivering on so many of the social and political priorities of the day around net zero and around uh, the transition to renewable energy. Um, but also, I think people have very high expectations that the mining industry needs to conform to the highest uh, social, environmental and governance um, criteria that investors and the public expect around the world. Yeah, that all sounds like corporate waffle to me. But what I know about you, David, is you're not you're not a corporate waffle bullshit kind of guy, really. You like to get down on the ground. Like uh, we shared a, a, a wee Instagram video recently, I think I shared with you, about Mongolia. I don't know why it came up on my feed, probably because my phone is listening to me. But um, t tell, tell me about your time in Mongolia, man, because that just sounds incredible. I mean, genuinely, yeah, amazing place. Yeah. It's on the bucket list now for me when I'd never even thought of it before. Before I'd heard of it from you, so tell me about your. Time well, it, so the first thing is, it was a, it, it was, a, it was a great um, privilege and opportunity to go there because, really, for a traveller, for anyone interested in 
intrepid traveling you know mongolia really is the gold star destination in the world so yeah. i went there uh in initially to um in a senior role with rio tinto rio was building um one of the largest copper and gold mines in the world and it was a fascinating place in mongolia to understand the issues about mining and a, and a, and a very ancient society is up until the um, late 80s mongolia was closed off from the world when communism collapsed it then had a traumatic um awakening to the world because all of its funding from russia stopped mm-hmm. and uh and and western mining companies started to explore well they discovered one of the largest copper and gold ore bodies in the world and it has become the biggest single investment in the country um um i mean the year before i got to mongolia in uh so this is 2009 i went there in 2010 in 2009 the gdp of mongolia was five billion us dollars uh, the first round of investments in the mine were seven billion dollars so this was a mine that was costing more than the annual gdp of mongolia to build so it was massively transformational for the country and the objective of rio tinto was to make sure that this was done in a way where every person in mongolia feels like they are better off because the mine's there because that's ultimately the only socially and economically sustainable position to take uh, when you are such an important part of a national economy so hold on no hold, so, on, hey, hold on hold hmm. on i i smell corporate comms here i can't believe <laughs> that like you you talk about rio going there to explore come on fuck's sake they're there to exploit Surely, and I say that as a capitalist. You know, I, I know I'm a, I'm a, um, I should be a protected species. I'm certainly an endangered species. I actually believe in free enterprise. I love SMEs, and I've got a bit of an allergic reaction and a vomit reaction to many of the big corporates because they're full of shit with all this ESG stuff. <laughs> Rio Tinto was there to exploit. Let's face it. Can you honestly sell me that how much, like how much of that seven billion went to the people of Mongolia? I don't buy it. I smell bullshit. Okay. Well, well, the first thing is that ultimately it is they are the minerals of mongolia so you have to be be granted a license to operate by the government of mongolia and so in the end if they don't like you they can shut you down and the thing about mining is that if once you've spent the seven billion dollars and put it in the ground they can still kick you out you can't take your mine away with you it's uh, it's there in the ground so uh, not a it's the ultimate no. it's not a movable asset you can't drive it over the border and park it somewhere else so so you really need to be in a position where um you know you obviously there's a negotiation and rio has the technology to develop a mine and there's very few it's a complicated mine there's very few people very few companies in the world that can do it and certainly the Mongolians can't just say, we'll figure it out ourselves. So there needs to be a, there is a deal struck. The other thing that the Mongolians couldn't do is that they didn't have the $7 billion. So there needed to be um, some sort of financing put in place that enabled them to, uh, to do it. And yeah, and while Rio clearly wants to do the best it can do for its shareholders, um, they can only do that if uh, you know the hosts of the of the mine are happy for them to continue on. So you have to find that sweet spot where everybody feels like they are better off because mm-hmm. the mine's there. 
and and we can just we just know from history that where conflicts arise everywhere where you know there's a thing called the resources curse which mm -hmm. particularly in africa you can look at country after country where the country appears to be worse off after the development of a large mineral sector and you think you know in, in the first part you think surely everybody's going to be better off if yeah there's all these jobs and all of this money flowing into the country but history tells you that more often than not that's not the case well for the modern mining company we have to find a way to be able to um hit that sweet spot where everybody feels better off tricky and what's i mean well i'm tempted to go two ways one is i saw um what's the boy's name macron uh, out in Africa recently, basically giving off to them about how they should respond. I think, was it about Russia and the Ukraine war? But anyway, basically, the Russians and the Germans, and no doubt the Americans, love to go to Africa and tell them what to do and what's what. And I think I, I, think I see uh, the worms turning. Like, the African leaders are rightly, in my opinion, standing up to a lot of these Western corporate-driven uh, governments. And they're basically saying, well, actually, we'd rather have the Chinese because they don't make war everywhere. Yeah, sure, you don't like their Belt and Road Initiative, but we quite like their money and their enterprise, and you can get fucked. So I, I think it's interesting that you're talking about uh, Rio Tinto, which is, my understanding, a Western company, um, mm -hmm. actually having that enlightened attitude and not going around trying to tell people what to do. Because I think a lot of Western as I say, big corporates and governments still have a bit of a colonial attitude. They obviously they deny it, but reality is reality. And yeah, what do you think of that? Do you think that the worm is turning and that these countries are going to be standing up for themselves more and rightfully so? Or what do you think? Uh, well, I, I think I think they've always stood up for themselves. I think that you know there's a there's a there's a big game being played here. There's there's mining companies and there's not-for-profits and civil society groups and everything. I think the big colonialists, to come to your point, I, I find that groups like um, the UN and the World Bank and the um, IMF and the IFC and all these multilateral organisations, I think they have a real colonial air about them mm -hmm. in terms of the, the sort of policies they want to see um, implemented. I think the learning of many mining companies is that, you know, the way that you transfer wealth effectively to the host country often has to come through, particularly through jobs, mm -hmm. because you can be paying a huge amount of money in royalties and the average person on the street, it's just an, an abstract number. They don't yeah. see anything. Yeah. It just goes into the government's coffers and, and, you know, corruption is one of the big problems that happens with, um, with in developing countries mm -hmm. but if people if lots of people have jobs and of course every person that's got a job probably has i don't know 10 to 20 family members around them let's see oh wow you know um so and so's got a great job down at that mine and they're really doing well and they're getting training and blah 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 well and that leads to a transfer of wealth into the community and it's also through using local suppliers is another way that um, the local business community feels like they are, are being empowered rather than, you know, a, a, on, the, on the opposite side of the ledger. If all you do is go and import all of your supplies from China or South Africa or somewhere, then, you know, the, the local businessmen feel like they're just, they're no better off because the mine's there. They're, they see their, uh, their own position, in fact, being weakened. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's lots of ways that you can do enlightened business um, without, you know, that 
and again, it is corporate um, bullshit, but I think the whole idea of you know, mutually beneficial outcomes is real. If, if a company can be a bit more patient and a bit more creative in how they cultivate relationships with local suppliers, that can be a real way that everybody feels like they're better off. If you can put money into really innovative technical training programs, so in a country that has no mining industry, which it was the case effectively for Mongolia, you know, you have to find a workforce of 10,000 Mongolians to run one of the world's largest mines. Well, if you can, if you can be innovative about a training program that transfers those sorts of skills, that's a great, um, a great uh, win for both for the people that get jobs, but for the country, because, you know, what miners know is that if you find one large mine in a region, there's probably many others there too, because, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're a bit like a needle in a haystack to find them. But, you know, the forces that created one have probably created others nearby. And therefore, you're training up people who will be the next, uh, you know, the employees of the next mine that comes along. So you're so talking, so, you're to, sorry to jump in, but I, we are short on time for this recording. I always keep my recordings around the 15 minutes because I'm not Joe Rogan, as they say. No one wants to hear three hours <laughs> of thought. They can't quite take that. So uh, you talk about the people a lot and I hear you. And, you know, I've seen you on, you know, on TV. I know you're a respected commentator for ABC and other like networks and things. So you really know your shit. But what I'm, what I'm hearing is a lot of theoretical and you sound like you are indeed a persuasive uh, some might say spinmeister. You've got the ability to give me the positive, which is great. I mean, I appreciate that. I do a bit of that myself. But what I want to know is, what about the people of Mongolia? Like, tell me about your favorite Mongolian. You've worked and lived there. Do you actually know anyone? Or did you just sit in a shiny office with your corporate spinmeister friends? Tell me about <laughs> your favorite Mongolian. No, no. Well, well I, uh, I mean, one of the, again, one of the great uh, privileges of the job is that I was responsible for community relations. And so, you know, I took the opportunity to go out with my community relations team who had established great networks of um, contacts, for example, with all of the herders in the Gobi region around the mine who were being um, effectively displaced by, by the mine. So that mm -hmm. mine was obviously disturbing the land hold patterns of herders. And so I'd go out and sit in their gears these you know round tents often called yurts mm -hmm. in russia i guess <clears throat> and i'd obviously have to be using interpreters but you know i had i sat with many many herders out in their country and was able to ask them about the effect of the mine on their lives and whether they were happy about it what were the things that were concerning them and you know i spent a lot of time hearing that i wanted to hear it you know, personally from people. And yes, there's a language barrier, but you can tell a lot from body language and people's faces and so forth. And Mongolians have the great trait of, you know, they don't, uh, they, they bow to no one. They're all the, uh, they're all the children of uh, Genghis Khan. So yeah. they're, uh, they're, uh, they don't they're, they're not, excellent. I love it. No, they're, they're, they're not, uh, they're not daunted by this, uh, this foreigner that's coming in. So, you know, people will tell you exactly how it is. And, you know, you understand, and I guess the thing that I've learned from doing this stuff in, in uh, many different places around the world is that firstly, nobody wants a mine in their community 
for the sake of a mine. You know, they're bloody big holes and they're a nuisance and they create a bunch of issues that, uh, you know, frankly, you'd rather not have. But if you can, A, protect the environment and B, create economic opportunities for local communities, generally, I find that people are happy to see mining there. You know, if they feel like they're, they're better off. But, you know, those are two non-trivial criteria that you've got to meet. Yeah. And if you don't meet them, you're in strife. And is that what you do? Like day to day, what do you actually do? Because I think you're a consultant yeah. of some kind. You're not actually working for the big beast Rio Tinto anymore, or not that I know of. You, no, no, but I give, I, give, I, I give advice to people about how to deal with these things because it's, A, I've... You know, I've done a lot of this work over a long period of time. So I've got a skill set and experience to look at how people are dealing with this because, you know, one of the pieces of research I did a few years ago is to say that if you look at the number of mines that shut earlier than expected, about 50% of those are because of technical reasons, which are unforeseen technical mm -hmm. failures, but 50% of them were socioeconomic or socio-political issues yeah. that where the communities just get jack of you and so they it becomes and there's many many cases of where mines have had to shut because the political situation or the security situation just got too difficult mm -hmm. and you know honestly those things are um those are the things that i focus on helping companies to avoid yeah because they are avoidable right because they're they're basically people issues like it's about how the mine is communicating with the local yeah well i, I would never say right? just i would never say just people issues <laughs> you might be you might incline to say just rock issues rocks are more predictable than people so it's complicated <laughs> dealing with people but um but nonetheless yes that you you have to think generally it's not beyond the wit of man to figure out a way that you can work through these difficulties now sometimes they go back for decades even centuries the grievances yeah. But um, but yes, um, as a as a starting principle, they are all resolvable. I'm just going to jump in and catch you because we're both a pair of old white geezers, and you just said it's not beyond the wit of man. Now I do understand that's just an expression, <laughs> but I also understand that you've got a co-host on Digging Deep who might not be an old uh, fat white guy like <laughs> me and you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's, uh, that's exactly right. So yes, it's not. Uh, beyond the wit of uh, humankind to uh, to resolve it. So, uh, Who's your co-host? Is she a secret? So, Are we not allowed to talk about that? <laughs> no, so, uh, so, um, so um, Patience Mufundu is my uh, co-host and she also has had a, uh, a very interesting background um, starting from a geotechnical base. She's a material scientist but uh, she's also worked in, uh, she's a native, she comes from Africa, she's a, uh, from Zimbabwe. Uh, she worked in South Africa, but then came to Australia to do a PhD in, in, uh, in chemistry. And, uh, but she's had a, an extensive um, uh, career of working with major mining companies, particularly in Africa. And so we share those uh, interests and convictions that, you know, mining, uh, for all of its well-publicised failures, um, does great things for communities and can do great things for communities, as well as we're both aware that 
you know, it's the products of mining that are needed if we're to be able to come anywhere near achieving the the goals that we've set ourselves in the next few years to, you know, to transition to uh, non-carbon forms of energy. It so, won't happen. Uh, so it's a very, no so it's a very. No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Hydrocarbons are here to stay, buddy, and I, I'm I'm happy to say it. I know nobody else is happy to say it, and everyone thinks I'm a lunatic, but. Uh... I'm calling it. I'm calling it. Right. I'm going to wrap up this call because um, I got another call I need to get on. And it's been great to have you on. I'm really genuinely, I mean, genuinely looking forward to listening to the Digging Deep podcast with yourself and patience. I hope you don't agree on everything. I hope she rips it out a bit with your, <laughs> with your old fat white guy opinions. It'll be magic. That's I'm, right. Genuinely, I'm looking forward to it, David. So thanks for coming on Thor Holt Presents. Um, and yeah, good stuff, man. Thanks again. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks for your time, Thor.